Good morning to our family. If you've not been with us here throughout Advent, we have been going narrow and deep in one verse of Scripture, Isaiah 9-6, probably one of the most famous uh, verses of Scripture that you'll hear around Christmas time, where the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before his coming, prophesied the coming of the future Messiah of Israel and the world, and he gave him these four titles that are profound when we stop and actually think about what they mean, which is what we've been doing over the past several weeks. Those titles are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. First week we talked about what it means that this coming one, that Jesus is our Wonderful Counselor, um, that he makes wise plans. As I studied this one a little bit more, even over the past couple of weeks, I, I, it was clarified kind of to me that this isn't so much about sitting across you know, the, the table on a couch from a counselor, kind of counsel. God does that. He provides that kind of wisdom for us in our individual lives. But this title is speaking more to the surpassing, unequaled, unrivaled wisdom that Jesus has in making plans for his grand plan of redemption for this world. For example, in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 1, the prophet writes, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. There's that word again, wonderful things. What are those things? Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So that wonderful counsel is more of um, a description of why we can trust uh, Jesus because his wisdom is perfect and surpasses anything else in the universe or anyone else in the universe. Last week we talked about his title, Mighty God, how he has not only the ability to create perfectly wise plans, but he has the ability to execute those plans as well, to follow through on them, to carry them out. He doesn't just have good ideas. He alone has the unrivaled power to put those into fruition. This week we're talking about what it means that he's everlasting father. Maybe one of the more confusing titles that this coming Messiah that Jesus was given here by Isaiah. But in short, it refers to how the wise plans he's put into place we can trust are for our good. Which flows out of an understanding of what it means that God is our father. And then next week we'll look at Prince of Peace, this title given to this coming Messiah, to Jesus, that speaks of the ultimate outcome of this kingdom, the fact that this king will ensure that his kingdom prospers and is filled with peace. Now, three of the four of these titles might communicate to you something that feels a little bit more aloof, distant, or maybe Jesus feels a little bit further removed from your life, Wonderful counselor, making plans, mighty God has this power, prince of peace, the outcome of his work will be this peace and prosperity in his kingdom. It may connote to you a, a king in a faraway place who's making these wise and good plans and you're happy for that, but it's far removed from you. Not even saying that's true, but that might be the, the, the connotation you have from those names. But when it comes to this name today, Everlasting Father, it should communicate something very different to us, something much more intimate and immediately involved in our lives. A father 
who cares for his children through loving them, providing for them, protecting them. And we're going to press into that today a little bit anyway. But first, I do want to acknowledge that not everyone necessarily has a good association with the idea of a father. For one reason or another, perhaps from your own experience with your dad. For some of you here, your experience with your earthly dad is, is probably unrecognizable to what God understands and means by father when he speaks of his fatherhood toward us. If that's been your experience, then this idea of an everlasting father in God might actually communicate something to you that feels more negative than it does positive to you. We're not gonna be able to unpack all that today and then reassemble it. But I do wanna encourage you to remain open-minded to the fact that if you come to understand rightly what God means when he says, I'm a father to you, or it relates to you in a fatherly way, great healing lies ahead for you in your life because it's very different than what you've experienced here on earth. But also, let me say to all of us who are here, because if you're here, you've got, a, you've got a dad of one form or another, whether he's in the picture or not. You just do, like that's just the way it works, right? All of us need to do some deconstruction when it comes to our understanding of father. By deconstruction, I just mean throwing out your presuppositions, throwing out your experiences that may be biased just for a moment, and then rebuild a true understanding based upon what's objective. Right? I say this because no earthly father is a perfect representation of our heavenly father, or even the best earthly fathers fall so far short, and I don't say that to disparage dads that you've had, that you have, or dads in this room. I say that to create the space for you to possibly fill that space with an idea of who God is as your father that far surpasses anything you could imagine in its goodness. So all of us may have to do some deconstruction. For example, for some of us, it's not just what our fathers did proactively to us that causes confusion or perhaps was hurtful or negatively colors our view. It may be the things that our fathers didn't do. Maybe not even intentionally didn't do, but just didn't know to do that colors our view. These are the things that are harder for us to identify and actually realize are absent from our understanding of what it means that God is our father. Maybe our dads were all grace and no truth, where there was never any discipline and we loved it because we got away with everything, but that leads to its own form of problems later in life, right? Maybe our dads were all truth and no grace. Maybe our, our, our fathers um, were hard workers, really hard workers, providing well for you, but were absent when it came to presence in your life. Or maybe they were present, but not really sacrificial when it came to providing, ensuring that you really had what you needed. Maybe that only kind of showed up down the line in your life and in your family's history. Maybe your father is fun to be around, a lot of fun to be around. Everyone loves to be around him, but not very spiritual necessarily, leading you into a deeper understanding of true wisdom. Or, or maybe your father has been super spiritual, quoting scriptures in your direction all the time that are true, but not much fun to be around and you feel more like a project with strings attached than a son or a daughter who's truly cherished and beloved by your dad. Even these examples that I'm giving are, are pretty polarized and kind of lack some nuance. Um, but even those of us who've had great fathers have not seen or understood through those examples 
the full picture of who our perfect Heavenly Father is. But of course, here we're talking about Jesus as everlasting Father, which admittedly is a bit confusing, right? Because we know him as God's Son. In the New Testament, we're told to relate to him in terms such as Lord or brother or friend even, but never Father. So how is it that the one that was born, as Isaiah 9, 6 tells us, as a, as a child, as a baby into this world who we know is called God's son, how is it that Isaiah is referring to him as everlasting father? Well, a couple points to hopefully help clarify here. Number one, first, we come to understand what it means that God is our father through how he's revealed himself in history, in his word, and yes, in his son. That was actually one of Jesus' main purposes when he came to this earth, is to reveal the Father to us. So he says in John 14, 8 to 10, to his disciples and Philip in particular, when Philip asks him, Lord, show us the Father, or says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So if we have seen Jesus for you and I in the scriptures, as the scriptures are illuminated by the Holy Spirit that he's given us through others who showcase, empowered by the Spirit, truth, truth about God, um, we've come to see our God as Father through Jesus. The second thing to note when it comes to understanding why Jesus would be called Everlasting Father here and how that could be a little bit confusing is that the doctrine of the Trinity, as we know it, Trinity, Tri, Three, right? So what we mean by that historically, the church from basically Jesus on means by that one God who's revealed himself in three persons. It's totally confusing and mysterious. That's okay. God is infinite. We are finite. We're not going to fully understand everything there is to know about God. That's more of a New Testament crystallized understanding of who God is that wasn't fully revealed or um, fully clear, clarified in Old Testament Israel. Okay, so it seems to me that Isaiah wasn't necessarily thinking or speaking in Trinitarian terms per se here when he identifies this coming future Messiah as everlasting father. Now that said, Old Testament Israel, Isaiah and his contemporaries did have an understanding of a sense of God as their father. The first time God actually reveals himself as a father to Israel was in the book of Exodus. Right? This is the story of Israel's slavery in Egypt for 400 years and God's deliverance of them from that slavery. And it was in that mighty act, in that deliverance of his people from Egypt, that he first identifies and calls Israel his son, his family, claims them as family. So we read in Exodus 4, 22 to 23, God's instructions to Moses. He says, then you shall, this is um, him instructing Moses as to what he's supposed to say to Pharaoh when he goes to him to ask for the release of God's people. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
So the inception, the beginning, the start of Israel's status as children of God, as God's family, came through God's rescue, deliverance of this group of people from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. Comes through, by the way, real clearly in the prophet Hosea as well, chapter 11, verse 1, where God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So first, let's not miss the obvious here, and that is this all-important implication that when you have God as your father, you are a part of his royal family. You are beloved by him as a son or a daughter of God. You are part of his family. But there's also an important implication here that the way that that happens, at least through God's redemptive story that's unfolded throughout history, is through deliverance, through rescuing. God in the case of Exodus, recognizes the plight of his enslaved people and he provided for their needs through rescuing them from Pharaoh, the most powerful man and ruler in the world at that time. This is what a father does. Out of love for his children, he recognizes their greatest need because he knows his children. He knows who they are inside and out. He knows what's best for them. He wants what's best for them. And then he provides for them in their need, and he protects them. And he rescues them from something to something, from slavery to something to sonship or daughtership, to family with him, which is one of the most intimate relationships possible. So then with this in mind, and with Israel's understanding at that time of what it meant that God was a father, how is Jesus then the everlasting father? Well, he's the everlasting father because if this is the role of a father to provide for and protect his child so that they can move from slavery to embracing and living out their true identity, then what more powerful example could we have of this than in Jesus and in what he did for us? Jesus didn't see us burdened under the oppression of Pharaoh. He saw us instead burdened under the oppression of our own sin and of the prince of this world, of Satan. Then Jesus came up with a wise plan to rescue us from that bondage. And not only did he have a plan, but he had the power to do something about it. Except his provision for our greatest need came from not a show of superior might. But it came from sacrifice and weakness, which in its own right is a showcase of great strength. I would say even more so than overthrowing Pharaoh. And through Jesus' death, he made provision for all who would trust in him, for all who would follow him out of the slavery they were into their sin and into his family. This is what he says, as captured by the Apostle John in John chapter 1, 12 and 13. John says here, but to all who did receive him, him being Jesus, the everlasting Father, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God through that act of deliverance. So what does it mean to receive him here, but to look to him alone for rescue from our slavery to our own sin? And then it's through receiving him, that's like our exodus linking arms with him, following him out of Egypt and receiving him, that we become God's family, the children of God, 
And so Jesus calls out a family, not living in a physical space like Israel lived in a physical place and time, but he calls out a family who are a part of his new heavenly kingdom, which is made up of anyone and anywhere who lives anywhere, who believes in him. He provides for our greatest need, and he also protects us. See, Jesus protects his family from the enemy of God, and even from ourselves at times, by preserving them to the end, to be able to live with him as family in his eternal kingdom. It's what he says in John 6, 39. Jesus says, and this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. So this, this is what it means that Jesus is everlasting Father. He's revealed the heart of the Father by sacrificing himself to provide for our greatest need and to protect us into eternity so that we can fully realize our true identity and our true inheritance as sons and daughters of the Most High God. So my questions that I'm going to leave with you this morning are a few and they actually target perhaps different audiences in this room. And the first one is this. Have you followed Jesus out of your spiritual Egypt and into adoption as members of his eternal family? Is that a decision that you've made? To receive the deliverance that he's willing to provide for you? That's where it starts, that's ground zero. That's where you become a son or a daughter of the most high God. For those of you who are sons and daughters of your heavenly father, let me ask you some questions here. They have to do with in light of how often you really consider your identity as a son or daughter of God and how that impacts you on a daily basis. How important is your identity as a member of God's eternal family when it comes to sustaining you through trial, sustaining your joy through trial? Another slight angle on that. What are the implications of this identity that can encourage you daily in your suffering? We're gonna give you three or four minutes, as we've been doing over the past couple of weeks, to actually sit and contemplate right now and ask for God's help to understand the answer to those questions. So we'll do that in a moment. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Father, I often start by addressing you that way and probably take it for granted far too often. But I start by simply thanking you for being our best possible understanding of what it means to have a father, for claiming us through Christ as your sons and daughters, through providing for our greatest need and for protecting us even from ourselves that we might endure as your children into eternity and into your eternal kingdom. Lord, there's so many things we haven't talked about today, all the nuances of what it also means that you're a father, your love for us, how you care for us, your discipline in our lives, which we know is intended for our good because you love us. Lord, I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, redefine in our hearts this morning what it means to be a father, and in particular, what it means for you to be our father. And that our understanding of that, as well as what it means to be a son or a daughter of the most high God, would be a new source of fuel, or a revitalized source of fuel in our life for hope and for joy, through suffering and through trial. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name for his glory, for our joy. Amen.